Hi, welcome to the Backstory Podcast at UC San Diego. My name is Ricardo Dicato, and today I'm talking to Bryce Steinberg, who is an assistant professor of economics at Brown University. She works on topics related to development, labor, education, and health. And today she gave a fantastic talk on a paper related to family planning in Zambia. And we're very excited to delve into the backstory of it. Hi, Bryce. Thanks for talking to us today. Thanks so much for having me. This is fun. So let's talk about the, pop- the paper you presented today. The title is uh, Family Planning, and Now and Later, Infertility Fear and Contraception Take-Up. So could you start by telling us uh, what question your paper asks, how it fits into literature, and what do you find? Yeah, so um, the question we want to understand is why contraceptive take-up is so low in sub-Saharan Africa, so particularly hormonal contraceptives, and particularly amongst young women who've never had a child. So you know, in Zambia, it's something like 5% of uh, women who are college age who are not seeking pregnancy um, are on a hormonal contraceptive and that number in the US is something like 50 or 60 percent in Europe it's more like 70 or 80 Um, and so it's really really low so we wanted to try to understand that Um, we use an RCT uh, to try to test two interventions one is a, a cash transfer that just pays women to go to a clinic um, where they can access these services if they want to. Um, and the second is this uh, uh, treatment that, that um, is an informational work- workshop that targets the fear that contraceptives cause infertility. Um, and uh, we find that uh, both treatments are fairly good at getting women kind of in the door of the fertility clinic. Um, they both increase sort of take up at first, but the the cash transfer alone effects fade out pretty quickly. And the effects of this, this infertility information workshop um, last for as long as we do the survey, which is about six months. Um, and so, you know, we think that, that this fear of infertility is kind of an, uh, an underappreciated barrier to take up of hormonal contraceptives for these women. Um, and that, you know, changing these beliefs can actually improve their lives, uh, reducing unwanted pregnancies. Yeah, and again, it was a fascinating uh, talk and, and topic, um, and I'm excited to get into the backstory of it. So, you know, I think this this also a paper that has like so many could have like so many interesting insights because it's also like a great like field work. So, I would love to kind of break it down into sort of like the life of the paper, starting from like the idea generation to like also some of the logistical things that you had to do in the field. Also, for those listeners that maybe are less familiar with field work, so. Let's start with the idea idea generation process. How did you get the idea? Yeah, so I had worked in Zambia a bit in graduate school. Um, my advisor, one of my advisors was Nava Ashraf, who had done a lot of work in Zambia. Um, and uh, Natalie was my uh, classmate in graduate school. And Corinne was sort of also our contemporary. She was at, at a different grad school, but she had worked with Nava too. So we were sort of in the same orbit. Um, and Natalie and I both kind of in graduate school really interested in education. And so that was both of our focus. And so we started thinking about, is there something in Zambia we could do around education and women's education? Um, and it just like, it kept kind of coming at us that pregnancy comes up all the time when you talk about sort of even primary school. So girls are a little bit older in primary school than you would think, but like girls, you know, as young as 14 are dropping out because of pregnancy. And so in Zambia, they actually keep statistics about, you know, reason for dropout, and pregnancy is by far the most common reason given. Um, 
And so we were kind of like, well, we can't really think about schooling without thinking about pregnancy. And we also um, did what is, I don't know, sometimes a cardinal sin, which is we, were, we had thought about where we could get funding. And the NIH had all this funding for contraceptive use and non-use. And, and NIH funding is always very tempting because it's enormous. If you can get one of these RO1s, it's like two and a half million dollars or something that you can get. Um, but they're like totally impossible to get. <laughs> so we, we chased... We chased that money for a little while. I mean, we had some seed funding from a population center, so we were kind of doing this contraceptive stuff. And we we basically like took a trip together. We used some of the seed money to go to Zambia. Um, we were both like early assistant professors, um, and we just took that first trip and like asked a lot of questions. So we set up a lot of meetings with people, like everyone who was willing to talk to us, basically. So people who did like worked at NGOs that were interested in family planning. We did, um, we met with like government ministers, like education and health and, you know, youth and I think we met with like the minister of youth sports or something. We just like went to everybody who had talked to us. Um, and then also we set up these focus groups with women um, from all different kind of walks of life in the city. We were particularly interested in kind of young women, but we went to the, the compounds, which was sort of the poorer areas of Lusaka. We talked to university students, we talked to all these people. And originally, we were interested really in primary and secondary education, just because that was where our background was. That's what we had thought about. Um, but while we were there on that first trip, uh, we are we could assign this like field manager. So we like contracted with IPA to kind of help us do some of the scoping. And the field manager that was working on our project was like, "Oh yeah, I went to UNSA and then I got pregnant and dropped out." And then the the woman who was sort of like the admin person at IPA was like, oh, I also went to UNSA, I got pregnant and dropped out. <laughs> and we were like, oh, maybe this is also an issue in at university. And so we started kind of pivoting a little bit to think about the university students. And just logistically, they're a lot easier because they're over 18. So IRB-wise, everything is easier. Contraceptives in particular, right? It's like people sometimes get a little iffy about encouraging, like they're worried you're going to encourage sex amongst minors and you know it's not like you can't can't do it there are interventions to do this but just everything is easier when people are over 18 and this you know the university women were amazing they're like a captive audience they're all right there they're sort of easy like a place to recruit them very easily and stuff um and they all speak english uh it's easier to survey so just like logistically it made a lot of sense and we could have had these existing partners at UNSA um who had sort of worked as co-PIs on projects and stuff. We like new professors there. And so both we could kind of like intellectually partner with them, but also just like logistically they could help us with like getting rooms and like getting permissions and all that kind of stuff. So it just, it made a lot of more sense to do this at the university, it turned out. Um, and it seemed to be really relevant there. And, and the more we thought about it, the more we thought this university population was kind of interesting because when we started looking into Again, we kind of came at this from the education perspective. So we were totally new to all of the contraceptives. We didn't know anything about contraceptives. Uh, and so we started looking into the like demography, public health, et cetera. And all these explanations about why contraceptive use is so low in Sub-Saharan Africa were like either about access, money, like physical access, just like they're not around, or like high desired fertility, or these issues around stigma. Or women just don't know. They're like uneducated. They just like don't know how the biology of it works, whatever. And like none of those explanations seem to fit these women. And then the other thing is, we were walking around and like 
this infertility thing just came up over and over and over again. So we were in, I remember this very distinctly, we were in a meeting with a group on campus that did trainings on reproductive health. Um, and so there was like peer educators, right? So they would go and do like trainings around family planning for the other students at UNSA. And we were talking with this with a woman who was a, who like ran the program. She was like an adult, and we were like, "Oh yeah, we're thinking about trying to like increase contraceptive take up among students." And she was like, "Oh yeah, that's never gonna work." And we were like, "Why?" And she's like, "Hey, Mary." And it was like the student walking by. She's like 19, and she's one of these peer educators. And she goes, "Mary, would you ever use contraceptives?" And she's like, "No, that shit will make you infertile." Like, and we were like, "Oh man, you're the one who's teaching the other students like this is terrible." And it just, like, it kept coming up over and over again. And so we at first, you know, we had all these other ideas about what we were going to do. and But um, it was, like, sort of staring us in the face, I guess. And we originally had this idea to do, like, this broader kind of side effects type training or other things about exactly how contraceptives work. But, like, every time we piloted stuff, it just seemed like this was the only thing that mattered. It was the only thing that people kind of clung to. Um and so that's how it ended up being, like, really the focus of the, the intervention. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting there that, you know, I don't think really comes out in the paper, but I would like to look at more is um, the other big thing that people would say is that, like, they don't want to be the kind of person who needs to use contraceptives. It's sort of like talking to people who are trying to quit smoking, you know? Like, they would just be like, well, I'm trying to quit. Like, I'm not going to need that because I'm not going to have sex anymore. And you're like, well history would show otherwise and so we thought that maybe this like cct treat some kind of behavioral nudge mm -hmm. could help them like kind of face facts mm -hmm. and just get over that cost of like kind of confronting their own identity or whatever and like take up the contraceptives and in some sense maybe it did because they did seem to like do there was some take up in that group although who knows i mean it's a when you pay people to do stuff, there's like a lot of reasons they could be doing it. Um, but it just didn't last, it just didn't, it didn't stick. So I don't know. I mean, I still find that piece of it kind of interesting, but yeah, you know. I mean, yeah, like you touch on so many great things that I would love to, you know, follow up on. But let's see if we have time. But um, I, I, I think it's very interesting. I, I wanted to ask a couple of these things that you already touched on that like I didn't know that for instance I knew like your other uh, projects on education so I didn't know this link between like your education background and projects and this and I think it's very interesting that you know you came in with this background and with these ideas and then by being there by, by talking to people by doing these focus groups you realize that if you wanted to get at something education there was a different problem that was maybe even more important and maybe first order to, to solve um, so that that's that's very interesting and and uh, I guess also the place, I was also wondering too, like why you chose a particular place or how do you go about these things? So I'm gonna try to maybe reframe some of the things you say and you can tell me if you agree. And, and I would love to know also if this is like something that you usually do when you approach like research or it's just uh, project dependent. It seems to me that like there is a combination of like um, things that you are uh, kind of like let's say practical or logistical things around like for instance you were already in, you already worked in Zambia so you knew the context or like the, the kind of funding you needed you know was was the, in that particular direction uh, or like you said the population was easier to work with and there's a mix of those things and also a mix of like what is the question that is like important and what would be the best population or the best place to do this and you know uh, and, and, and it seems almost like 
it's a it's a fine art of like mixing these two things. Uh, yeah, do you agree? And do you have like I guess a preference of approach if you could f- be free of choosing? Is yeah, that- I mean, I um, sometimes I describe this as like there's sort of three things you need for a paper. You need like an interesting question. You need some kind of identification, and you need data. So identification might be an experiment, it might be a natural experiment, whatever, but you need some something, generally, if you're in applied micro. And so it's hard to find all three of those things at once. And so I think for m- most people, you kind of need like a running list of a, of a bunch of those things, and you're always trying to sort of match them up. So it's like you have a list of interesting questions in your head that if you ever got the chance to answer them, they would be cool. You kind of like keep a list of those, and then you kind of, as you move on, you know a lot of the list of the existing data. You have some sense of what data would be possible to collect. <coughs> Sorry, there's some, um, and then you think about like what experiments are possible, or what you know you hear about like interesting policy experiments or weird rollouts of programs, or you know all the natural experiments that we know about. And then you're constantly trying to like play a match game. You know, it's like, can I get all three? And like, would it work? And most of the time, the answer is no. no. Um, so I think sometimes it's hard. You get like, fixated on a question, and you're like, I need to answer this question. But like, a lot of questions are just not answerable in, especially with kind of finite time and money, which defines graduate school. Hopefully, finite time. Um, and so, I think the ability to kind of pivot and like figure out you know, really take into account it, the logistics matters a lot. I mean, you don't, sometimes I, I call it like students will get fielditis too, where they like go out to the field for so long, they become so focused on what's feasible that they lose the question entirely. So you got to kind of always be iterating back and forth. Mm-hmm. But if you're too fixated on the question, you often end up with, you know, answering nothing really mm-hmm. in the end. Um, you know, I see this a lot with experimental design where students um, want to answer the best possible question and they, their design for an experiment is wildly underpowered yeah, yeah. for that thing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, keeping the balance between being on the kind of production possibility frontier of interesting and doable it, it seems to game. me that, like this project is a very good example of like things that you you did you guys did in uh, I I would say the right way because in a sense like you had some interest but you were kept an open mind you were involved in the field and at the same time you started by talking to partners right so you already had in mind that you needed to kind of talk to like possible NGOs or governments to yeah. see the feasibility of it and I yeah I really loved uh, also like everything you said about the focus groups and yeah I wanted to. And, and sorry, another thing is this also fits well in the literature because there is this puzzle, right, of like the other things that people have done don't really explain this. So I guess you had that opportunity to, to be able to, to answer an important question as well. Um, coming back to the focus group, I guess, like uh, those are maybe not things that we often talk about. Like uh, this is a project where like even in the presentation you were mentioning like how this informed like the design and everything and, and makes a lot of sense. How do you usually approach focus groups? Like how will one uh, approach them? Like uh, I guess. Yeah, I mean this is really hard because we get basically no training in this. I mean there are whole courses on like how to do this and I never took any of those courses. Um, so 
the way, I mean, there's like a logistical answer, which is like usually you have to have somebody in country who kind of knows. So if there's an IPA office or something like often they can help do this because you got to like find a population of people. And the more specific the population you need, the harder it is. Um, and then there's kind of an art to figuring out like how to ask questions and let people talk. Um, and we actually found with this project, we were doing some focus groups and we ended up doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one interviews because the group dynamics were often really difficult with the like stigmatized behavior. Um, and so for instance, sometimes transactional sex would come up and I found this, I was doing more focus groups on, on that specific issue just recently. And sometimes you get one girl who would be like, well, it's just about morality. And you're, and you know, and then it's like shut down. Like nobody would say anything after that, right? Because it's like no one's, whereas if you get the first girl saying like, well, you know, like I've been approached by these men. And then all of a sudden it's like, I've been approached by these men. And I, you know, and then you sort of get everyone talking. And so I think part of the issue with focus groups is just doing enough of them mm -hmm. that you kind of can, because some of them are going to be a bust. Like some of them, like one person will just dominate it. And so yeah. if you, you, you always want to do a, a bunch of them. Um, and you always want to let people talk as much as possible. But it can be, especially if you're trying to get at complex or stigmatized things, it can be really, really hard to figure out exactly how to approach the situation. Um, and it can take, and you know, and also I think the other thing that we do in the background is like we work with people at IPA and like our surveyors or like field managers, we run everything by them first. Like, so we, they're kind of always our first focus group. We're always like, what do you think? Do you think? And sometimes I'd be like, this is crazy. <laughs> like we actually have another project in Zambia that's like an old paper, but we were looking at what happened when there were water outages um, to, on a bunch of things. So, so the water is like always out in many developing country cities, like the water goes out and in. And so we're like, oh, can we look at like how people substitute to, do they substitute to dirty water? Like what do they do when the water is out? And like, does it have health impacts? So we found that there were impacts on health and also like economic activities. We were looking at like financial transactions with mobile money. And we had this idea that it was like people were getting sick so they weren't going to the market. That was like what we thought was happening. And then we talked, this is the paper with administrative data and stuff. So we weren't, we weren't like running experiments. So then we ran it by some of the people at IPA. We're like, oh, isn't this the coolest thing? And they're like, that's not what's happening, you idiots. Like when water is out, you gotta spend your whole day like going to get water. It's a whole thing. You gotta like go to the next town over and go to the tap and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, so the reason they're not going to the market is not because they're sick, it's because they're like fetching water all day. And we're like, oh, that makes a ton of sense. But I didn't know, and you know, so I think sometimes just like, you can waste an enormous amount of time in a room with your data, where if you just asked someone who has any familiarity with the context, it gets cleared up like almost yeah. immediately. Um, so I think there's kind yeah. of a background thing before we're even doing these focus groups where we're like really just running everything by our surveyors and our, so, like even one or two people on the ground can be mm -hmm. just enormously helpful for that kind of baseline. So I guess in check. practice that would work like, like you just said, like even before you do the focus group, like, do you do you actually do like a trip just to get a sense of things, or I guess if you we have... usually do do both, but it's like the yeah. first couple of days we're kind of just talking to people, yeah, yeah. and then we once we kind of have honed in the sort of question a bit, and we're mm -hmm. like, okay, we want 
we now like I feel like I know these three people's opinion on this. Let me try to get like twenty yeah, more people's yeah. opinion on this, and people from different walks of life or whatever. Nice. Um, but yeah, usually it's like we've kind of narrowed it down by the time we actually even get to the focus group or one-on-one interview kind of stage. And moving to the, I guess, the implementation part of it, mm-hmm. like, um, I, I wonder, like, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of challenges uh, <laughs> doing that. Like, if you want to share anything that you think it would like interesting to know, uh, you know, please do. And I was uh, thinking, like, specifically, like, this is also, like you said before, a delicate topic, and it is like also ethics consideration and all of that. So it seems like hard to navigate. Uh, and to put into place. So I'm just curious. To yeah. Hear. Yeah. I mean, I think so. One logistical thing that's worth thinking about if you want to run an RCT is like usually you have a choice between, I mean, sometimes you don't always have the choice, but like uh, running something with a partner, either an NGO or government, or like running it on your own. And in the first case, it's easier, but you might not always have total control about how things go down. Sometimes it's useful because say it's like you're interested in experimentation at scale, like you want to know actually how the government would run this. But a lot of times you're trying to do some kind of like existence proof or something a little bit more delicate and you really do want to have kind of fine control over what's happening. And in this experiment, we originally were going to partner with Marie Stopes. Um, the f- on the ground team at Marie Stopes really, really liked the idea. Um, they were very interested in this, like trying to reach young women. Um, but the sort of higher-ups, like international uh, Marie Stopes, they had changed their leadership, and they were basically like, we are not interested in experimentation, like, writ large. No one can do this. So then we were like, all right, I guess we'll just do it on our own. We'll kind of run these trainings ourselves. We'll do everything. And so that's what we did. And the benefit of that is you get a lot of control for exactly what happens. Um, But it is incredibly costly in terms of, time and effort like you're basically running an NGO yourself um and depending on who your partner you know we had IPA for surveying and that kind of stuff but you know even that like typically needs a lot of supervision um and so that can be a really hard trade-off um and you know I don't totally know what the right answer is I will say like this way of doing it is really hard (laughs) (laughs) makes sense yeah um um, and yeah, I mean, you asked about the sensitive questions. I mean, I think we did a, we were really worried about this. We thought maybe no one would tell us the truth about sex and stuff like that. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting is we kind of stumbled upon this idea of using the mobile phones. This was pre-COVID when we started piloting this, and so people were doing less of this. Um, but there were some studies in the U.S. where they were doing, because we were also interested in like high-frequency data because we wanted short recall periods, and so it's just. It's kind of impossible to like send a surveyor to somebody's house every two weeks. But so the reason that I thought this would work is I, I did this piloting. So we programmed the survey up on some phones and we had this little focus group and we just handed the phones out to girls and we were like, here, just take the survey. And I was like, I don't care what you say, just I just want to know if the survey works and the questions make sense. So like lie, I don't care. So it's like everybody does a little survey and even I did it. And I realized as I was doing it, like I was telling the truth because it was just easier. Like, it, like, I would have had to think to lie, and, like, I didn't care. And so I asked them, I was like, oh, did you guys tell the truth? And they were all like, yeah, I just, I don't know, I didn't really think about it. I just, they asked me a question, I just answered it. Um, and so we could even, we even, like, used that data, because we're like, oh, like, now we can sort of learn a little bit about these women's lives. Um, 
And we kind of, and then we started to probe into that. We're like, you know, do you think, because we found when we were doing these one-on-one interviews, you know, it's like in a focus group, women would say like, oh, 60% of girls here have blessers, which are these like older kind of transactional sex partners. And then we would interview 20 girls and nobody would say that they had a blesser. And we're like, and so then we started to kind of probe this and we're like, oh, do you think that people are honest when they talk? And, and they said like, you know, this in the, with the phone, I feel like it's anonymous. And with the, when there's a surveyor there, I just, I, I feel like they're giving me a look, you know? And so there's a sense of like, oh, I think actually we're getting more accurate information. I mean, on the flip side, we're worried about kind of like fat fingers or people just kind of saying whatever. There's that worry as well. But, you know, it was interesting to us that that seemed to be a better way to collect the sensitive data. And, you know, that's reassuring in some sense because a lot of surveying is moving this way. And so if that's the case, then I think it's it's good news. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting when you also mentioned it today. And... Uh... It makes sense when you think about it. Also, people are familiar with phones nowadays, uh, even more so. And yeah. So it's just like, yeah, it, it seems like more private than just having someone in front of you yeah. asking you the question. Um, so we, we don't have that much time left, but I guess I wanted to ask you something. Um, so, you know, when 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 some someone does like a field work, you know, we often talk about what did you learn in terms of, of like maybe, you know, what's the result of your paper or something? I, I just kind of want to know maybe on a broader perspective uh, if there is anything that like you you bring home of this experience that you learn that is not necessarily your re- research output, can be anything either professionally that you can use for other papers or even personally that you have want to share. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bunch of stuff. I, this project in particular is more than any other projects made me want to like just be an anthropologist so I can you know just describe the population because I think it's really fascinating you know I think some of the things like you know I do want to do more work with this population because I think they are really understudied like even I as a person who's interested in education in the developing world really had not thought very much about university students and you know enrollment in sub-saharan Africa is like eight to ten percent now it's pretty high like this is not a trivial share of the population and what's happening as enrollment goes up is that the marginal student in college is much poorer than they used to be. And so now we find with these women is that they're, they're really, really, but some subset of them are really, really broke and really worried about money all the time. And so our, like the reason that we sort of figured this out is like a lot of them are having transactional sex. Um, and so that's sort of a symptom, I think, of this like broader financial vulnerability. But they're also like taking out these high interest loans and they're eating one meal a day, they're losing weight, they're sleeping eight to a dorm room. Like it's really, really, um, they're in pretty dire straits. Um, and you know, it's kind of wild to me that like, you know, I don't know exactly what these numbers are. We can only sort of guess with our data and focus groups that we've done, but like, some non-trivial percent of this population is basically getting through college via arguably sex work, right? And it's just like, I don't think we know very much about that. You know, if you think about like the papers that we have about sex work, you know, sex workers are, uh, as you know, you think about them as sort of like women who are kind of primarily doing this as their, their job, a really small percent of the population, really, really small. In our data, it's like, 25% of them are getting pretty significant cash transfers from men they're having sex with. Like, you could argue about to what extent that's labor income or something else. You know, I think that's like a thing we're interested in trying to understand. 
But if that's a true labor market, it's like bigger than manufacturing. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is like a huge phenomenon. And I think people kind of know it's a thing, but I don't know, like, I think it is quantitatively incredibly important, um, particularly for tertiary education, but also just for like young women in general. This is like a very primary income generation, generating activity in a world with really high HIV rates, um, really high unintended pregnancies, right? Like it's just, I find that aspect of it really, really fascinating. Um, and, you know, that's the thing that we're trying to sort of uh, fundraise around getting more information on. Um, and then I think I thought that was interesting just like as a Westerner and as a, like a highly educated type A woman is um, there's a lot of, there's just like a different way of thinking about pregnancy. Like a lot of them just talk about pregnancy as like a, like a thing that happens to you, right? It's like almost everybody I know went from like trying very hard not to get pregnant, trying very hard to get pregnant. <laughs> like there was like two modes, right? There was very little ambivalence, very little like time in which you were kind of just risking it. These women spend like a lot of time kind of risking it and they just, they see it very differently. Like, they don't see it as something you're kind of actively doing. They see it as like a lightning strike and you're just kind of crossing your fingers and hoping. And that was like, a, it was a real shift for me to try to understand that because it was so foreign to the way that I thought about it. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, it's fascinating, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that you shared all these insights with us today. And I wish we could be, you know, we, have, we could have more time to speak. Maybe next time you come to San Diego. But, you know, thanks, Bryce, uh, for talking to us today. That was very generous of you, and I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, and thanks for coming to the talk.